Welcome to Midday Magazine for December 20th. I'm Jordan Lewis. Controversy over a logging project near Yakutat in southeast Alaska has intensified. The local tribe, an archaeologist, and others say a site that's being logged is home to centuries-old ruins that could provide clues into the history of southeast Alaska's indigenous people. Coast Alaska's Angela Denning has more. Yakutat elder Victoria Demert says her ancestors, for hundreds of years, harvested the abundant salmon that returned to Humpback Creek every summer. I don't know how you could live here, grow up here, and not know. She's a council member for the Yakutat Slinkit tribe. Just this past August, the tribe passed a resolution calling the site sacred and culturally historic. Elders like Demert and anthropologists say the tribe purchased the site from previous inhabitants hundreds of years ago. So Demer says she was taken aback when she learned that the local native village corporation, Yaktat Kwan Incorporated, had begun clear-cutting the forests around Humpback Creek. She says the company never publicly announced that its subsidiary, Yak Timber, planned to log the area. We had to find out by seeing what was going on and then seeing some drone footage of it, in addition mm-hmm. to pictures that were being taken. In a December 8th letter to Yaktat Kwan, the tribe called on the company to stop logging the area. The tribe wants time to investigate the site. We know we had a village there, and we know there are historical sites there, and we want Yaktat Kwan to stop and let archaeologists get in there before everything's destroyed. Now there's physical evidence of the history, says the Alaska Heritage Institute. That's the regional native nonprofit organization dedicated to preserving the history and culture of indigenous people in Southeast. A yak timber equipment operator found what could be several house pits and a series of parallel stone walls at the site being logged. That was at the beginning of December. The Institute announced the findings in a joint news release with the Yakutat Thinket Tribe and Sea Alaska Corporation on December 15th. The groups called on Yak Timber to stop logging the area until it can be investigated. The cultural and spiritual dimensions of it, uh, that, that's really important to us. Rosita Worrell is the Institute's president and a Ph.D. anthropologist. The rock wall, to me, I'm just so curious about what what is that? What kind of fishing occurred, you know, with that rock wall? Sea Alaska Heritage is working with archaeologist Aaron Crowell with the Smithsonian Institute's Arctic Studies Center. Crowell believes the Yakutat site could date back 700 years. In the joint news release, he says, quote, A remarkable set of cultural features related to salmon harvesting appears to be preserved. He says it doesn't seem to be substantially damaged by the logging, at least not yet. Even before Humpback Creek, Logging was controversial among Yaktat Kwan shareholders, so much so that Yak Timber announced October 4th it would dissolve and sell off its assets. But later in the fall, Yak Timber reversed course and started logging near Humpback Creek. Yeah, Yak Timber is, is harvesting. We've been harvesting. That's Marvin Adams, CEO of Yak Timber, on December 13th, two days before Sea Alaska Heritage announced their findings. He says the site has never been documented as historic and was approved by the Alaska Division of Forestry after they inspected it in 1975. A 2007 letter from Sea Alaska Corporation discussing historic sites did not identify the area either. After the findings were announced, Adams said he had not yet been formally notified of Humpback Creek's cultural significance. He said the company would follow all relevant laws and regulations, but declined to say whether Yak Timber would continue logging the area. 
obviously we're not going to go over some historical site and destroy it. I think we all respect that. But right now I have not been able to get any documentation from the tribe or anybody else. He points to work of anthropologist Frederica de Laguna. She researched and wrote extensively about the Yakutat Flinket tribe from notes she gathered in the 40s and 50s. Adams says she never mentioned Hutback Creek as a sacred site. If there was actually a historical site and a settlement there, I can assure you that that would have been listed in, in, in the specific house and the clan house that was supposed to be there would have been listed. But it never was. But Demert sees it differently. Though De Laguna's work doesn't go into detail, she says the anthropologist's notes do mention Humpback Creek as an important salmon harvesting site. It's where her people, Quashkequan, got their name, which means people of the Humpback Creek. It's part of our history. It's part of who we are. And to see it desecrated, it just hurts spiritually and physically. It just breaks our heart and brings tears. Worrell? The Sea Alaska Heritage President says the tribal groups are working with Kroll and the state to see how they can investigate the site further. Reporting in Petersburg, I'm Angela Denning. The Alaska Supreme Court last Wednesday, uh, December 14th, heard oral arguments in an appeal brought by the Sitka Tribe of Alaska over the management of herring. The tribe asked the high court to reverse a 2021 superior court decision that ruled in favor of the state on a constitutional claim. A final ruling on the matter could take months. KCAW's Catherine Rose reports. In 2021, lawyers for the Sitka tribe of Alaska argued that the state hadn't met its constitutional obligation to provide the best available information to the Board of Fisheries as it considered a number of proposals to limit the commercial harvest of herring in Sitka Sound during its 2018 meeting. The tribe claimed that the state had omitted a particular document called the Martell Report, which recommended a number of improvements to the way the Department of Fish and Game estimates the amount of available herring in Sitka Sound. At the time, Juneau Judge Daniel Shalley ruled that the state broke no rules by failing to provide the report to the Board of Fish. In his 13-page decision, he wrote that there's no requirement in the sustained yield clause of the state constitution for the state to provide the best available information. Over a year and a half later, attorney John Starkey challenged that claim before the Alaska Supreme Court. But our point is, despite how difficult it is, how technical it is, it's up, it's up to the decision makers to make a judgment about all those issues. You know, once it's revealed, there can be a dialogue between the department and the board about the report. But if the board never gets to see the report, the board never gets to ask those questions, the board never gets to make those judgments for itself. It takes the power away from the rulemaking authority to see the evidence and for them to determine whether it's too technical. In addition to that, Your Honor, it takes away the opportunity for the public to see the report. Kimber Rogers, representing the state, argued that it's the Board of Fisheries' responsibility to balance the economic, ecological, and cultural concerns in its oversight of the state fisheries, not the courts. This court has repeatedly stated that courts may not substitute their judgment for that of the trained biologist and other scientists hired to manage Alaska's complex fisheries. 
But this is exactly what the tribe is asking for. They're asking for micromanagement of the decision-making process. But the text of the sustained yield clause and this court's interpretations of that clause do not impose such a duty on the department to provide any particular information to the board. Rogers maintained that although state biologists weren't constitutionally required to provide the Martell report, their comments on regulatory proposals at the 2018 Board of Fish meeting were nonetheless informed by it. Rogers said providing the whole document would not have been useful for board members. That said, you know, herring were already returning in substantial abundance. So, the, you know, the department is going above and beyond and trying to do everything it can to make its forecasting model better. And that's what the Martell report was about. But it's highly scientific and technical, very difficult for a lay person to digest. So, no, the department did not directly provide the Martell report. Rogers also argued that the board could have obtained the report through the public process. It was never intended to be suppressed or concealed by the department. So, but certainly I think members of the public could make public records requests to the department and say, please send me all the relevant information you have about this issue or that issue. And then the department would have some obligation to respond to that public records request. And then they might have, you know, as part of that, gotten the Martell report and been able to provide it to the board themselves. Starkey, however, challenged that assertion, arguing that the state was overestimating the capacity of the board to obtain material that wasn't provided directly by the department. The agency has got the information, they're holding it. Sitka tribe might have known that they were going to work on trying to improve the model, but they sure didn't know that there was a report out there that explained how and what the problems were with the, with the current model, and that was relevant information. In her remarks, Senior Justice Dana Fabe suggested that the case pivoted on the idea of whether the department had failed in its responsibility to supply the board with all the material needed for it to make an informed decision about Sitka's herring population in 2018. That our role is to ensure the agency is given reasoned discretion to all the material facts and issues. How can the board give reasoned, its reasoned discretion that's beyond our review once they take a hard look to all the material facts and issues, if those haven't been provided to them. But to me, that's the bottom line of this case. The Supreme Court has taken the matter under advisement and will issue a written decision at a later date, which could be months away. Reporting in Sitka, I'm Catherine Rose. You can find the full oral argument between representation for Sitka Tribe, the state, and the Southeast Herring Conservation Alliance at kcaw.org. Every year at Christmas time, Petersburg celebrates with several days of eulabucking. Businesses give out food and treats to residents. It's an adaptation of a long-standing Scandinavian tradition. KFSK's Rachel Cassandra spoke with Marcy Figuereo from El Zarape on why the Mexican restaurant gives out tamales for eulabucking. My name is Marcy Figueroa, and I've been in Petersburg like 20 years, but um, I just had this business in El Zarape. Um, here in Petersburg for three years, over three years. Tell me about what you serve today for Eula Bucking. Uh, we've been doing the Eula Bucking for, since we started, uh, three years ago. Uh, the, we do tamales, tamale, rice and beans, uh, for the community. You know, thank you for all your support. Appreciate that. And can you tell me a little bit about why you choose tamales for Eula Bucking? Uh, because it's a Mexican restaurant and it's traditional in, uh, the, in the Mexican culture. You know, that's the first thing, tamales, pozole. Tamales are, t- are typical to serve for Christmas season. Is that true? Yes, it is. Yes. I was raised in Oregon, 
But all my family, like like on Christmas, we get together and we even make our own tamales. Um, everybody just pitch in and and uh, start making them. You know, uh, my mom taught us how to do it, and I want to share my culture um, and my gratitude for the for Petersburg. That was Marcy Figueroa from El Zarape talking with Campus K's Rachel Cassandra. Cassandra will be talking with businesses all week about the foods they give out for Eula Bucking. The Devil's Thumb Shooters is a youth shotgun program in Petersburg. It was started by Larry O'Rear and Officer Kelly Sweetheart six years ago. The program has grown, and they have 31 athletes this year. Campus K's Avery Hederman Sakamoto sat down with Becky Turland, and coach and board member, to discuss the program. So it's a youth youth marksmanship program um, started about six years ago, I want to say roughly. Uh, started off with six athletes, six shooters. I, I don't like using the word shooters, but it is, you know, athletes. And we are up to 31 of them that were registered this year. We traveled to Juno. We took 17 of those athletes with us up to Juno. And multiple did place again, like we, we tend to place every time we go to a tournament in Alaska. Uh, when we went up there, we had two that had actually made the state team this summer. Since then, we've had two more join. So we have four double sum shooters, all sophomores that are representing Petersburg on the state shooting team, and they will be traveling outside of the state as well. And they have two trips planned there, too. So that is, you know, the Alaska Yes program, but with four of our shooters that are going. We have a spring season and we have a fall season. The spring season typically is longer because we have a lot more daylight and it is warmer out. And they practice, I want to say, 10 to 12 weeks in the spring. And that ends with a tournament up in Anchorage. And then we have our fall season. That is usually only about eight weeks, roughly. Um, they only practice once a week then in, you know, darkness and cold and lots of other activities. And then they end that tournament, the one that we just finished here in October, up in Juneau. Currently, Devil's Home Shooters have been asked to serve at different banquets. So that's been a fundraiser. We did our Friends of the NRA banquet, which is the major area where we get our funds to have the program. And from there, um, Barbet with the Emblem Club has asked us to do a few banquet serving with them. We are going to be doing one with Ariel Rontree as well, so all those funds get split up between who's working, and it goes towards the actual travel, the shooter's travel or their summer or spring expenses coming up, so it's a nice opportunity. That was Becky Turland, coach and board member of the Devil's Thumb Shooters, speaking with KFSK's Avery Herman Sakamoto.